You're listening to the Games Street Office podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief James Batchelor, and I'm joined this week by Managing Editor Brendan Sinclair. How are you, sir? I'm, I'm tired, as always, but, you know, ready to talk about stuff on a podcast. You're tired, but fully air-conditioned. Yes, yes. Last week was not, not a great week to have your air conditioner break, but it's better now. Also joining us is news editor Danielle Partis. How are you? Hello. I am also tired, um, but happy to be back on the podcast after some weeks away. Can't remember how many, but uh, yeah, glad to be back here. It feels like we've all been away for a few weeks. I think we've had a few special episodes here and there, and like there's certainly been a few episodes where we've only spoken about one topic. So it's kind of nice to have like the option of like lots of topics this week. So I'm kind of looking forward to diving into this. Um, before we do, obviously, I've got to introduce staff writer Jeffrey Rousseau. How are you? Hello, I'm good. I have a cup of coffee and I'm ready to talk. <laughs> I worry about the, the vibe we're giving off of this team. We've got tired, tired. I'm good because I've got coffee. I like coffee. Yeah, we're <laughs> caffeine dependent. <laughs> I remember I was at a doctor's visit and a question I came up was like, how much coffee do you drink? And I'm like, oh, enough. <laughs> <laughs> when is enough enough? I don't know. I don't drink coffee, so I don't know how much is enough. That, that's not the subject of this podcast. So we'll leave that to the listener's imagination. Let's dive in. Um, as I say, there's plenty of stories to talk about this week. We've got a few we want to dip into, but we may end up discussing one more than the other. So let's dive into the first one. The first one is we want to talk about Twitch. Now, Twitch has been in the headlines again uh, recently. Mostly for the wave of hate raids, uh, as the term that's going around. So bots and you know, chat messages and groups of people diving into the live chats of particularly um, marginalised streamers with just a torrent of abuse while they're live. Twitch has claimed that they're going to do better, that they're working on automating the process. They've said that there are tools available to the different streamers. It's still been enough of a problem that it's led to a few hashtags uh, starting to trend. So you've had hashtag Twitch do better. Uh, and then more recently, we've had hashtag a day off Twitch. So there are plans that on September 1st, Streamers are going to stop all broadcasts for one day in an effort to stop Twitch from basically receiving as much traffic and revenue on that day to kind of basically, if we if we hit their financials, they might notice and might listen to us. Jeffrey, you particularly want to talk about this, um, so you have thoughts, I gather. Right. So after you read the story that Danielle wrote today, you'll notice in particular that we know they released a transparency report, right, where it said uh, less than 15% of user reports led to reinforcement actions and also showed that only 2% of reports against harassment and hateful conduct led to action. So the thing about these hate raids is that they're not new. If by any way you're, you're shocked by this, I'm really sorry. You must have been living under a rock because it's been for years what is different now it's just the rate that it's going and of course i don't speak for every streamer or any black streamers of course but i i have noticed with the black streamers that i do follow is what what's happening is that you know as james explained they'll be live these folks are just doing what they normally do and it's so it's a wave of hate and the thing is the current tools right now that are available aren't good enough what folks really have done if you've seen online on twitter is that they've shared resources and bots and other tools that they themselves have to go out of their way to implement to make sure that doesn't happen to them to make sure that their community is safe it just sucks where, you know, if you're working, um, you have contractual obligations or, you know, you're just hanging out in a stream and the next thing you see, you see every flavor of the N-word in your chat. 
I don't stream, but I have been on the receiving end of something like that before on another platform. And it is the responsibility of the platform to have tools in place to either stop that, be aware of that, and make sure it doesn't happen again. Because what's happening right now is like literally being a marginalized person, in particular a black person and your respective um, intersections, is a liability for a platform. Now, just think about that sentence I just said. That's ridiculous, right? Just you existing is a liability. Say you just want to play, I don't know, Psychonauts 2 just came out, to, uh, it was going to come out. And next thing, you get a hate raid. The other part of this conversation with Twitch, Den is that, okay, you understand that this problem is happening to your marginalized streamers, folks who are partnered, affiliated, or not. It is your responsibility to take care of that because them just being them is what's making this happen. Obviously, it's people taking actions, what have you, but you do need to do better. That's why there's going to be a day off because, unfortunately, Twitch has proven over the years that it's a very reactive company. We have multiple stories that show this, that they do not take action unless there's enough to warrant it. So, like most businesses, it has to hit their pocket for something to happen. And in this case, if, if it's a bunch of folks not streaming and nothing's happening, whatever, then that's going to send a message. And it's gotten to that point because it has to. And with the number of people who do work with Twitch, it's not like they don't know about these things. There's obviously enough prominent or marginalized folks who they work with who know the ins and outs of these things, who have... I'm sure have let them know, okay, you need to take care of this, whatever, to take care of marginalized folks so this doesn't happen. There's no reason why I'm streaming a game or talking to my community and these things are happening. I'm sure they're very aware of it. Wherever that falls on their priority list, it needs to jump up to number one now because this is ridiculous. It's just one of those things where, you know, as a marginalized person, whether, you know, you're a woman, you're a shade of black or brown, these things just happen on platforms, and a really good point that I saw that uh, one of my peers said was that when you don't implement these kind of safety measures on your platform, but you know marginalized people use it, that becomes a liability, and a liability issue becomes a business issue. When it becomes a business issue, then what you're kind of saying by not taking actions is you're not home to people of respective identities. Of course, we're not claiming that Twitch is saying that, but, you know, you have to take action. You're right. I kind of want to expand a little bit on one of the things you were saying, like about the, the a lot of the argument around this has been like the need for better tools. Um, there's been some really interesting examples around this. The best one I'll give is there's a streamer called Art for the Apocalypse. He tried to demonstrate something on the, the hashtag Twitch do better. Talking about blocking certain words, you gave a prime example of a word that absolutely needs to be blocked. The users are able to avoid kind of automatic text checks or bots that kind of look for certain words by just swapping out characters from other alphabets or characters with accents and so forth. And he demonstrated this brilliantly. After the Apocalypse demonstrated this by, he ran a bot that just tried to create different versions of the word jogger. So just using different characters to replace J, O, G, E, and R. So a three or an E or an accent, strike through R, all the different kind of special characters you get in different alphabets, different languages. 
He ran a bot. There are 21.9 million versions of the word jogger just by swapping the different letter. And Twitch has come out, apparently come out and said, we've given streamers the tools to do with this. You've got your own bots and stuff to kind of moderate your own chat. He said that because of the limits to how much a streamer can use their bot, the limits of the number of messages that a bot can send out, a streamer's bot can send out to its own chat channel within a minute, his bot would have to be running 24 hours a day, seven days a week for 76 days to just block all variations of the word jogger. That is not giving people the tools to do the job. Conversely, whether Twitch has done this intentionally or not, I highly doubt they've done it intentionally, you'd really hope not, they've essentially given the tools to people to make these hate raids worse. Because as Danielle pointed out in her story, earlier this year they added 350 tags for people to kind of identify as, you know, LGBT, black, like all these kind of different, you know, marginalised groups, like, you know, tags to kind of highlight that their content is from that type of streamer or that type of community or that type of discussion. And that's giving people a way to directly work out which groups and which streams to target the tools to protect streamers from this sort of abuse are not good enough and they've inadvertently created tools to empower more hate which is awful you know when you solve one problem with tech you can sometimes create another problem by solving one other and you know these things happen but you know in this case is that it's helping people literally just be total dirt bags <laughs> The other part of this conversation as well is that when we go back to the business part, Twitch is, is different where it's not surprising that the top streamers aren't exactly uh, – it, it's very homogenized is a nice way of saying it when, when you look at the, the top streamers. So when you look at what's happening there versus what most other people are happening, of course, if you look at it from there, you're, you're thinking, okay, business is running smooth, but – the thing with that is there's a really great thread. I, I'm totally blanking on it where someone explains, but like the top streamers, they tend to have like the biggest mod communities where they just have folks just working on these things and, and chat is moving pretty fast and they're not really noticing these things. But w when you look at a business from it being top heavy, you kind of lose sight of what's happening to most people. And I think that's also a problem as well. Again, I'm sure Twitch is very aware of these things, but that doesn't help the problem that most people face versus your top 1%. I think what Twitch needs here is to introduce more friction into the system. Because when it's easy and trivial for these people to create fake new accounts just to like raid someone, then it's difficult, you know, because what James was talking about, adding 21 million new words to the blacklist of things you can't say on the platform seems Im impractical. But if you do things like require any new account to be tied to a phone number, require captures every time that you log in for the first, you know, 20, 30 times or something, make sure that there's a human behind it, even kind of before you can participate in twitch chat you know you you have to have been there for a certain amount of time or, or maybe twitch comments go into a queue and then they have to be manually approved by the person running the uh, the channel for you know your first 50 or 100 comments something like that you know put put friction in there slow down the tactics that hate raiders might use ban of course the the accounts that are participating in this there are ways to make it enough of a hassle that you can seriously cut down 
on the amount of these kind of uh, attacks that you get. And Twitch, no doubt, knows about these ways, has considered them before, but has decided, like, well, you know, we like to see the numbers go up. We like to see user accounts go up. We like to, to see engagement and interaction go up. And sometimes the, you know, streamer drama when they raid each other, that works for us a lot of times. It's it's not necessarily quite as awful of this, as this, but it might be, you know, antagonistic for sure. And maybe we do kind of want that on our platform. I would disagree with that, but I suspect that's kind of the way they're looking at the problem. And Twitch decides to do all this. Like every part of the system is a decision. And they're all decisions that help make it engaging and successful. But they are decisions. You know, they, they could just turn off the engagement. No one gets to comment. It's just a service where people stream and they try and build their communities like that. You know, maybe that's not a viable business quite like that to be so absolutist about it. But it's it's possible. And what Twitch does by just throwing up their hands and saying like, oh, this is a problem we'll do better, hold us accountable, we really care about this, and we'll make a few changes and tweaks around the edges later on. It's absolutely insufficient, because it's their platform, they decide what can happen on the platform, and they're turning a blind eye to this, like, honestly, like they've turned a blind eye to many, many dire problems that they have had since day one. The platform itself, whatever actions they decide to do or decide to take, I just hope this is the next one that they give us an update about because it's pretty glaring and it's um, not good from a public standpoint because, again, the message that it sends out is, yeah, marginalized folks are being treated like dirt, but we're kind of taking care of it, sort of. And again, I'm not accusing whatever hard work I know that has to be taken care of to, to make sure this gets stamped out. But it's been a problem that's been known for years. The last couple of years, I've just seen like folks talk about this stuff at length. So it's a well-known fact that they're aware of. I hope it gets fixed soon. I don't want to get like too self-promotional, but the last October we ran a story. The headline was Twitch staff called the company out on sexual assault, racism, and more. I would advise everyone to read that because I don't know how you can read through that story and and come away with any sense of confidence that upper management at Twitch, Emmett Shear in particular, cares about this in the least or is willing to do anything about it to fix it. If Emmett had read that article, if Emmett had had the discussions with Twitch employees that I had, he would either step down and apologize and, and do it with a sense of shame or uh, he's just be an absolutely, utterly shameless, irredeemable, you know. Not everything that people told me wound up in that article for a number of reasons. But it is beyond appalling to me that, like, holding up the mirror and showing them what they are, what they've done, had not really resulted in any change at the company, it seems. It's, it's weird, because, like, that article is one of the things I've done in my career that I'm most proud of, but also I think is one of the biggest failures of my career because like we put that out and it was out of the news cycle two days later. Twitch never really 
commented on it other than to say that, oh my gosh, some of this stuff was like five years ago. It's unreasonable to hold us accountable for that. And they just went on. It didn't seem to do a bit of change. And that is incredibly frustrating to me. It's definitely worth a read if you haven't already. I'll include a, a link in the show notes and the article attached to this podcast. Final thing I'll say on this is if we're talking about what change we want to see, my hope is, my perhaps naively optimistic hope, is that this a hashtag a day off Twitch protest really kind of picks up traction like i was talking to danielle about this earlier like the real hope is that they get some bigger streamers on there because like if marginalized streamers are all behind this hashtag it will make maybe slightly a dent in twitch's financials but what you really want is like the the massive ones the the, the biggest streamers to kind of get behind this and kind of help try and make this platform better but then those are the streamers that are benefiting from the platform as it is. So I kind of, I don't know how realistic I hope that is. If it doesn't work, maybe hashtag a week off Twitch. You know, if that doesn't work. And, like that, and that's a difficult one because obviously you're asking the streamers themselves, like this is a source of income for them. You're asking them to give up their, you know, their income for a day or a week in order to kind of protest this. Like, and it, it, it's a question of how much they can afford to do so. But yeah, I just, I hope that the streaming equivalent of voting with your wallet, if we, if everyone can kind of just down tools on, on September 1st and see if Twitch finally takes notice, although I highly doubt they will. Yes, please protect marginalized people on your platforms. If you do not, you are failing them. Please. Speaking of broken platforms, a lot of people were talking about Roblox recently due in part to a new investigation from People Make Games. Now, this was a 20-minute, 22-minute video that did the rounds last week. The title was Investigation How Roblox is Exploiting Young Game Developers. It's definitely worth a watch. Um, this really kind of explored Roblox's business model in a way I haven't seen done before. Um, it kind of reminds you or really throws in stark light how that system operates jeffrey again you, you kind of wrote this story so do you mind kind of like summing up some of the biggest things that you kind of took away from this yeah sure so when you're watching the video the argument that they're making is that when you go to the platform you're you're most likely a younger person uh, i think their core base was said to be between the ages of 9 and 15 i believe and you know one of the things that you see is that you can earn money from making games on the platform the thing about that process is that after you create a game and you release it the point from going to i just finished my game to start making money gets very very dicey because the platform has a discoverability, I, I won't necessarily say the word issue, but getting discovered is, is one hurdle. Then after you get discovered, being popular to the point where you can earn funds is another hurdle. And then the other issue afterwards is that you then have to be profitable to a certain degree where it makes sense for you. But here's the thing. <laughs> Your game, uh, according to People Make Games, is you have to generate 100,000 Robux, which is roughly equivalent of $1,000 US. And it's at that point, it has to be that amount of money for you to be able to then withdraw it. But when you withdraw it, you do not get $1,000. What you get at that point is $350. So the the whole argument that is is that you have this platform that children play on and kids are being misled on on what game development is 
and, and promises that aren't really working out. The platform has over 200 million users a month, right? And there's a ridiculous amount of games on the platform. But the front page only shows you a thousand. Just a thousand. So that in itself is a fight too. And when you do, you also have to earn currency to be able to be showcased on the front page. But that in itself is an opportunity. You're trying to get an ad slot. It's not guaranteed. I wouldn't want my younger cousins uh, to play it, that's for sure. So the ad slots are also like, it's it's an auction process. So the kids have to like bid on it against other creators in order to get their game featured in that top 1,000. And then since they're being paid in Robux, that's the currency that you use to pay other creators for their games or for assets that you might need, things like that. And it keeps that money rotating around inside the system and Roblox can take a cut of it at each transaction. So then that just makes it so much harder to build up the, you know, thousand dollars equivalent of Robux that you would need to cash out at all. This is the sort of business model which it takes a bit of time to kind of get your head around it. I mean, that that video is like explaining it in pretty straightforward terms, and it's already 20 minutes long and directed at adults. So when you have a an audience that's vastly composed of minors and you're, you're giving them this obfuscated, opaque system and you're just telling them like, look, here's a few people that made a whole lot of money on Roblox and you can do this too... It really very quickly kind of crosses that line from, oh, here is this wonderful, accessible game development tool, bringing new audiences into game development and kind of encouraging them with something that's accessible and lets them play around and make whatever they feel like, which is great, and quickly kind of nudging it towards the, and now we are building our business on the creative work of children and uh, not only that but then we're we're also kind of using these same heavy-handed techniques that are illegal in the real world with actual companies like you can't you know pay your employees in script and then force them to shop from the company store anytime you're building a business where children are the target audience that is a, a tightrope that i think you have to to walk because, I mean, there's got to be a certain level of acceptability for this, you know? Like, if you're going to make children's entertainment, like Sesame Street's okay, isn't it? Uh, I don't know. You're still, you know, trying to appeal to the kids and market to them and then sell them merch and, and things like that. There's definitely a gray area there, but I think Roblox's business model has gone sort of beyond that gray area. There's a few things I want to dive into because I, I remember coming away from the video. I watched the video on Friday. And I think the first thing I said in the, in, the, in the team chat was like, this is shady as hell. I think I've calmed down slightly since watching it. It's still pretty damn shady. Let's, let, let's not get away from that. But there's a few things that you kind of on reflection, you're like, oh, OK, hang on. Yes, there's 200 million users a month, but not all of them will be trying to make games and make money. When you're at the stage where you are a, a parent of children, you know parents with other children, and those children do play Roblox, and they just play the games. Like, okay, that's okay. I don't mind them just playing the games. That's you're not being exploited. You're playing a game that is providing you with a fun experience, and you're not. And they may not actually be spending money. 
so the idea that you know of, of thinking of every single child player of this as a potential employee a potential worker that's a slightly flawed perspective but enough of the children are doing this enough young players are doing this to make roblox the success that it is the monetization is awful as jeffrey pointed out you only earn robux for games or items that you sell in roblox you do not earn real money you earn robux and you can only cash that out when you have a hundred thousand which is the equivalent of a thousand but actually you're only getting 350 that is dodgy as hell the developer shares that were going around i think the developers earn 24.5 percent of their revenue compared to 70 percent on steam or 88 percent on epic game store i struggle to understand how there are studios because there are adult studios now i've interviewed some who are trying to build their entire business around making games in roblox as if it were a platform Matt Handrahan, our former editor-in-chief, he interviewed someone last year uh, that do Adopt Me. It's one of Roblox's biggest games. They earn a ridiculous amount of money because it's so popular that even on a twenty, you know, less than 25% cut, they are earning ridiculous amounts of money. Like It's just such a bizarre and odd system to me that you can be earning a fraction of what your game is actually making, and yet that's enough. The discoverability issue, that is the one I'm perhaps less upset about because that is the case of any platform where you create content. YouTube, Twitch, Steam. I haven't used this analogy in a while, but I'll, I'll use it now. If you're an indie author on Amazon, you are definitely competing with more than 20 million books on that site. To get your book found, to get your book discovered, you need to pay for advertising, or you need to employ in some sort of marketing scheme, or you need to do something that generally would require some sort of investment if you want to get to the stage where you're earning the levels of money that people want. And I think the levels of money is, is my biggest issue when I came away from this. Was um, It's the language Roblox uses, certainly on its website, that kind of highlighted in the video. Earn serious cash. That's the lie there. You're not going to earn serious cash because of the discoverability, because of the number of people you're competing with, because of the shocking exchange rate between Robux and real money. You cannot earn serious cash. There's a couple of exceptions possibly, but the vast majority of users are never going to. It's overselling the, the promise to a very, very young audience. And yeah, I think it needs to be questioned. There was also the point that with the platform... You know, say I had it on Steam and I decided to go to the Epic Game Store. You can't really do that with Roblox. In fact, you can't. Say if you were tired of the platform and you wanted to try your hand at others to see if you'd be more successful sales-wise, you can't really do that either. So the thing that I keep looking at is, is it's a free-to-play business model, right? You've got a large number of customers and they aren't giving you money, even though they are getting value out of the product that you're offering them. And that part is great, but the problem is that you start having to lean on the number that is giving you the money more and more because they're having to carry the business costs for, for everyone and they're the reason that you're, you're still there. It gets dodgy enough with free-to-play games when it's like, hey, here's our FIFA Ultimate Team. Uh, which isn't free to play even, but still. And and we've got our, our paying players and our whales, and we're leaning on them really hard because they're what makes us our money. And it's bad enough in normal free-to-play terms, but when it's a, a thing aimed at kids, you know, when it's Roblox and your whales are largely children hoping to strike it rich in game development, 
it's bad enough that we sell images and fantasies of, oh my gosh, you can be a super successful indie developer overnight in general in other parts of this industry. But Roblox just takes that, that same messaging and selling of, of hope to people despite obscene odds against it, and then takes that message and directs it at children. That's deeply concerning. What's also concerning is like Roblox is so successful. I'm going to redefine successful there because I know that in terms of its financial results, obviously it's not profitable and it hasn't been profitable for some time. But it still generates enough money and has a big enough audience that it's become something that other people are trying to emulate. The companies haven't said this specifically, but you've got companies like Manticore who are making Core, which is a software at all for making games that other people can play and the idea is you make your own games you share that out now they may position it as trying to be something different but ultimately that is a roblox like platform you're creating a software tool that enables users of all ages likely young ones to build a game to build a virtual world to build an experience that they then share with other people that is very much a similar model playstation's dreams that is in essence, a very similar concept. You're giving players accessible, child-friendly almost development tools, giving them the ability to build anything. And, you know, in Dream's case, it's like you know, music videos and pieces of art and so forth, but mo- most likely games. And Media Molecule has said they want to get to the stage where they want creators to be able to monetize their content. They want to be able to monetize their creations and, and let people sell their games on. I think Steam was the example given. None of them are specifically saying they're doing it in the way that Roblox does. But when you see Roblox do this, it's hard not to think that some of the inspiration comes from that. And it's like, well, if the model you are aspiring to, if the model you're kind of building on is already questionable, to put it mildly, what does that mean for what you're building? 10, 15 years ago, the, hey, we just want to make game development tools accessible to people and introduce them to the wonders of making games and how great that is. That was a, a sort of a credible excuse because, you know, before Little Big Planet, the last big thing that I remembered as far as user generated content was like click and play, which I absolutely loved uh, back in the day. But now, in a world with Dreams and Mario Maker and Little Big Planet and Game Builder Garage and Roblox, any startup now that is like, hey, we're doing the user generated content thing and we're going to build it around that and it's going to be so awesome. There's not like this this void of accessible development tools. Even Unity and Unreal have been lowering the barrier considerably to not just, hey, here's a fun tool to mess around with and see if you like it, but like this is actually commercial game development for you in the future if, if you take to it. More accessible tools is always great, but when they're coming with a business model that is that is built on selling content that other people create for you for free, that's a problem. Last story we're talking about today is Boyfriend Dungeon. There's been a bit of backlash around this game, around its release, mostly around some of the content, but also some of the, kind of the reactions to the content. This is a game by Kit Fox Games. It's an RPG mixed dating sim. 
and it covers very kind of sensitive topics in some of its storylines. So there's some storylines that involve stalking, domestic abuse, emotional manipulation. And some people who've been playing this have been kind of complaining this on Twitter that they weren't warned about the nature of the game and the nature of the storylines before they played. Now, Kit Fox Games has updated the content warning since... They acknowledged on Twitter that the content warning, as it was when the game first came out, was kind of inadequate. That was their word, inadequate, for conveying what the topics are in the game. They've now come out with a new warning, so the game now warns you, this game story involves exposure to unwanted advances, stalking, and other forms of emotional manipulation. Play with care and take breaks as needed. Some of the content has changed. Uh, Daniel, you covered this, so you can perhaps go into some of the changes that they made to the actual game itself. They didn't change anything to do with the main storyline that people were concerned about. I, I don't want to spell the plot or anything, but that was kind of pertaining to the the main storyline. But they did change a few other sensitive references. One thing that they did include that I liked was a toggle to turn off in-game text from a character that, that represents the, the protagonist's mum. Should players want to avoid that if they find that upsetting for any reason? So the game kind of hit a bit of praise for, for doing that, which kind of said that they were thinking about this sensitive content and they hadn't put this stuff in without care. So the the calls to have references from such a pivotal point of the plot kind of got a bit lost in that. I guess it's fair to, to want a warning about sensitive content and um, people were warned, um, maybe not as specifically as they could have been, as Kit Fox said, uh, hence the, the update to the disclaimer. But then I guess the question comes into play that if people don't want to encounter these sensitive topics at all or they want them removed from the game, like where does that end for any type of media? That's one of the things I took away from this. Like, why is that even a question in this media? Like, some of the storylines here, you know, uh, stalking, domestic abuse, kidnapping, soap operas do this sort of stuff on a, not weekly basis, but a regular basis. They regularly build storylines around these sort of topics. It's kind of the core of what they do and how, the, how they get people kind of watching and desperate to find out what happens next. Like, they explore these kind of difficult topics. And all right, they've finally started adding the, uh, the warning of, you know, if, if any of the topics in this episode have affected you, please contact and they'll give a resource. But they don't do that until the end of the episode. I'll clarify now, I don't watch a lot of soap operas, but I am, I'm aware of these storylines. So why can't video games do this? Like, these are the sort of topics that can be covered in books, film, TV, music soap operas like i say on you know, on tv but why not video games why can't there be yeah there are so so many dating sims out there and i know the dating sims are ultimately almost like kind of a fantasy as it were or, you know some of them are out positioned out there as kind of this harmless fantasy of kind of imagining yourself in this kind of relationship or certainly in this kind of this courtship stage but to have one out there that actually explores the darker side of real world relationships like you know the, the dark side of what stuff that actually happens out there because this this is perhaps the thing that annoyed me most about the backlash you saw people requesting an opt-out option for a stalking storyline so to, to stop a character from stalking you and making these unwanted advances that's literally the point people who are stalked people who have unwanted advances do not get the option to opt out like, we cover this enough in all the stuff that we've been doing about all the you know, harassment and abuse at all the various different companies across the industry. None of those people, none of the victims that are covered in those stories had the option to opt out of what was happening to them. So why should you have that option in a video game that's trying to get this stuff across? I mean, we've, we've spent decades treating video games as a product. This is entertainment. 
it's just for fun, things like that. And people, I think, kind of grow up with certain expectations around video games as a result. And I mean, I, I understand where people are coming from when they're like, you know, I'd like this game. And then all of a sudden it just came up with something that was like really difficult for me to deal with. If you're not here for that, that's not cool. That hurts. And developers, of course, should be sensitive to the impact that, you know, the stories they tell have on people. Like, it, it kind of depends on, on how people are expressing their displeasure at this, right? Are they just saying, hey, Kit Fox, um, I was playing this and I had real problems with this part because I wasn't expecting that. And that made it really painful for me to play through. Can you do something about that? I do wonder if, if some of it is, is because we have this whole, like, cozy games movement ethos philosophy gaining traction in the industry in, in the last few years and there's an overlap there with a lot of indie game developers especially indie games that aren't necessarily like a traditional looking game quirky indie games and it might be people who are into the whole cozy game thing seeing certain signifiers whether it's art styles or quirky ideas or whatever that kind of communicate to them, hey, this is a cozy game. This is belonging to that that subset of no bad vibes kind of things that I want. But actually, are a lot of those games kind of do dwell around uh, a number of weighty topics. It's tough for me to like shake my finger at people who aren't aren't happy with what they wound up with or, or think that there was some sort of surprise oh, we're dealing with some really heavy stuff and gave you no indication of it beforehand. On the other hand, for the creator, like, this is your creation, and you can create it however you want to, say whatever you want to, express yourself however you want to, and if you decide no, letting people opt out of the stocking thing is, is not in line with what I'm trying to get across with this game, then that seems reasonable to me, too. I hate to, like, look at an issue and then just kind of both sides it I can see where, where people are coming from on this. I can see where Kit Fox is coming from. I don't think there's malice here, certainly not from Kit Fox, and I don't believe that there's... I, I haven't seen it myself, but I'm, I'm inclined to think that it's not necessarily negligence either. But maybe it's a learning experience for them. You know, like maybe they think like, oh, okay, there are these things, like with the mom change that they made, that, that suggests like, yes, there were complaints about the game that they thought were legitimate and that they did not want to spring on people maybe they wind up thinking about this stuff a little bit more in the future and hopefully when people are playing games and having problems like this they are being reasonable and respectful in how they communicate them to the developers it's a difficult balance for the developers certainly because on the one hand yeah you want to preserve the story you're trying to tell in a way that will have the most impact but as Kit Fox has demonstrated, yeah, you can be open to kind of giving these kind of trigger warnings before someone starts your game. Because trigger warnings kind of opens us to highlighting that video games are exploring very kind of different topics and exploring very different types of scenes, but equally they can kind of potentially spoil certain experiences. The example I'm thinking of, and it didn't have a trigger warning, but What Remains of Edith Finch, superb game. I absolutely was blown over by it. There was one scene that I won't give away for, for spoilers, but anyone who's played it probably knows the one I'm talking about, that I had to have to stop playing after I'd reached that bit because I just had to kind of take a moment and rest and kind of 
gather myself and I didn't go back to to the next day. Now, that is partly because I just did not see a scene like that coming. It was perfectly in keeping with the, the game. It was perfectly in keeping with the story. It was further than I was comfortable with at that precise moment. It was further than I've seen games content go in the past. Would I have changed that? No. I think it was expertly done. It was absolutely brilliantly handled. Would I have wanted a trigger warning beforehand? Maybe. But then when I'd have got to that scene, I'd have known what was going to happen. I'd have known what was going to occur and it would have taken away the impact. Now, that is a very kind of personal and very isolated example. But that's that's an example of how difficult a balance it is to strike with this. Touching on these sensitive issues and doing so in a way that makes maximum impact. And as Brendan says, kind of is up to the developer's vision, but also is in a way that doesn't make people too uncomfortable i'm thinking of that going back to that edith finch scene i know people that if they'd have played that when i played that that would have had a very very different effect on them and yeah maybe they would have needed a warning beforehand it's difficult you have a studio you know of marginalized developers create this game that you know is for marginalized folks um you know lgbt QIA and queer and I, I guess people felt that because of that and like Brendan mentioned the whole cozy games label they they probably just assume oh there's there's really nothing in here that's probably gonna be mildly triggering so maybe that's where that came about as well I, I, I'm thinking but yeah you know I, I think it's always a tightrope for developers to keep these things in mind while just letting their intended audience know they don't want to cause harm but they want to tell the best story that they do and or, or whatever it is the story that they want to tell uh, whether or not you put in the proper quote unquote warning labels or not I, I think it's always a difficult position to be in uh, regardless of what story you're trying to tell that is all we've got time for. We're going to be back next week with your regular news show. In the meantime, you can find all previous episodes of the GamesIndustry.biz podcast on the podcasting platform of your choice. And you can get more news, insight, and analysis into the world behind video games at GamesIndustry.biz. 